are coming into our, our third last message in our series on Mark and it has been such a ride and almost in many ways sad to kind of see the end draw near but we're going to be really pouring into and giving ourselves to again one of the most beautiful passages in the whole book as we have an extended time beyond Easter to pause at the foot of the cross. So why don't I pray, and if you have your Bibles uh, with you, open to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read down to verse 20 and then pray for us. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for this king. Our king. The innocent one. The undefeated one. The one who stood silent before his accusers. Lord, this morning we ask for a miracle. A miracle of sight, Lord. A miracle to see him as he is lifted on high. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> this morning I wanted to begin uh, with a photo. And uh, you should see the photo come up on your screen uh, just in a second. Uh, have we got it there? Ah, there it is. This is a photo uh, of a very special day. Uh, the photo is of two now elderly brothers embracing. Uh, this photo was taken on the 21st of November 2014. And these two brothers are on the left, Ronnie, <clears throat> and on the right, Wiley Bridgman. And the reason why they are tearfully embracing is that this photo was taken on the day of their release from prison. These brothers, 39 years previously, were sentenced to die, wrongfully accused of aggravated murder. Wrongfully accused of aggravated murder, they had been placed on death row, facing death. Uh, years later, their sentence had been commuted to life in prison, and the whole case was based on the testimony of a 12-year-old boy. His name is uh, Eddie Vernon. However, Eddie, now in his 50s, had confessed that he had not actually witnessed the shooting and had made it up. And other witnesses confirmed Eddie's testimony. This is a picture of terrible injustice. Nearly 40 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Nearly their whole lives taken away. Working career taken. Holidays with family taken. The opportunity to marry taken. The opportunity to have children taken. The opportunity to have grandchildren taken away. A terrible injustice. And yet, the injustice portrayed by this photo is nothing compared to the injustice that we witnessed this morning in the condemnation of the one man who was truly innocent. Uh, this message for those that take notes, uh, I've entitled, In Our Place, Condemned. And as we go through this passage, we're going to look at four different characters that uh, Mark wants us to see. And in our passage, every character will condemn Jesus as worthy of death, each for his own different reasons, which we're going to take some time to look at. And as we look at the different reasons, we will pause to consider how we can see something of ourselves in each of these characters who reject him. However, 
We mustn't be too quick to focus on ourselves in this passage. Because this passage is not primarily about us. It's about Christ. It's about the King. And as Riley uh, pointed out for us so helpfully last week, the darkness in each of these characters that we will see is what will make this precious jewel shine bright. It's the darkness of the sky that makes the shine, the lights shine so brightly. It's the blackness of the cloth that brings the jewel's radiant beauty to the fore. And so it is with our passage. We'll really be plugging away at a very simple point uh, this morning. And that is that, that as we see our innocent king being condemned in our place, we'd respond with fresh thanks to God. I want us to see this innocent one being condemned and I want us to see that it's in our place and, and I think the only way we can respond is to just praise and give thanks to God and that is our hope for this morning. I want us to see that this condemnation, this death was a place-taking death. It was in our place and that is the, the message that Mark wants for us to see this morning. And so let us begin with our first point, our first group of characters, which is naturally the religious leaders. Point one, the religious leaders. Just by way of context, uh, as you're well aware, we have arrived really at the climax of Mark's gospel. And it's just a few short hours away from that early Friday morning when Jesus would be crucified. And from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, over the messages, we've got to know Jesus and we've got to know that he's absolutely remarkable. We've got to know his remarkable teaching, that it had authority, that he was confrontational, that he was perceptive. We've got to see his authority and power over sickness, that he healed the lame, that he healed the sick, that he cast out demons. We've seen his power and authority over nature, that he calms the sea and the wind, that he walks on water, that we see his power over death, that he, that he raises Jairus' daughter who was dead. We've seen his authority most of all to forgive sins, that he claims to be God himself. And despite all his incredible power, we've seen him teaching time and time again that he must die and rise. And in 1032, we see him leading the procession ahead of the disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And he arrives in Jerusalem largely unnoticed. He has these repeated confrontations with the religious elite. And a few weeks ago, we saw him at the Last Supper, teaching that he will be betrayed and teaches that he will die. But not only die, he teaches that he will rise again. And after agonizing over his impending death, he's betrayed into the hands of the religious elite. And last week we saw his sham trial where he is for the first time beaten and he's mocked. And now we come to Thursday evening. The religious establishment has concluded that Jesus is a blasphemer. That he is worthy of death. And now in the early hours of Friday morning, we arrive at our passage. And we meet the first of our four key characters in our passage. Why don't you read with me again verse 1. 
And Mark writes, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. In chapter 14, uh, just a few verses earlier, uh, verse 62, Jesus had said the words that would seal his fate. He said the following, he said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. They had the evidence they needed. They tore their clothes and they cried, he's a blasphemer and he's worthy of death. Why then the need for the chief priests to consult? Well, you see, Roman law gave lots of freedoms for the priests and the religious establishment to govern. But they could not carry out the death penalty. They needed Roman approval for that. But the Romans were very antagonistic towards the Jews. They were hostile. They were at odds with each other. And so they needed a way to get their attention. They'd found him guilty of blasphemy. But Romans, they're pagans. Uh, They have multiple gods. They wouldn't accept blasphemy as a charge of putting someone to death. So they come up with a sly plan. And they bind Jesus. And they deliver him over to Pilate in the early hours of the morning. But why were they so determined to have Jesus killed? Why? Well, we read it in verse 10. It says of Pilate, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. The reason they wanted Jesus to die was they were envious. The reason is jealousy. Why were they envious? Well, Jesus was becoming increasingly popular. In chapter 2, we see crowds flocking around the house as he heals. In chapter 6, we see thousands of people coming, great crowds, and Jesus directly challenged their authority. In chapter 3, we saw the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, and Jesus defies them to show that he's Lord of the Sabbath and heals the man with a withered hand. In 7-9, we see him accusing them of rejecting the command of God with their traditions of washing. In chapter 12, 24, Jesus says of the Pharisees, he says, you neither know the power of God nor the scriptures. In chapter 12, later on, he says, in fact, beware of the Pharisees and scribes. He warns people against them. And the religious leaders not only believed Jesus' claims, disbelieved Jesus' claims, they envied his influence. They loved being praised by others. But Jesus was exposing their sin. They loved exerting authority and influence over others. They loved to call the shots. But Jesus was directly threatening their influence and authority, drawing crowds to hear him, and he was a threat that needed to be eliminated. Well, many people, similarly, in our culture, in our city, Reject Christ for very similar reasons. You might even be sitting here this morning and you don't consider yourself a religious person at all. You see, we live in an individualistic culture. 
We love to call the shots for our own lives. We love exerting influence. We love following our dreams and influencing others to achieve what we want. And we resent giving up our right for self-determination. More, we resent being told how we're living's wrong. And Jesus' moral teaching, especially on sexuality and exclusivity, we resent it. And we are tempted by our culture to reject it. And so we see Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders. Why? They condemn him out of envy. They resent being exposed by him. And they resent his claim to authority over them. That's the first character we see, but it's not the only character. Move on. We see, secondly, Pontius Pilate. Now, in order to really understand the character of Pontius Pilate, we need to draw a little from what we know of Pilate from history. Uh, Pilate was the Roman prefect. Uh, He was the Roman prefect of Judea. He was chosen directly by the emperor at the start of his, uh, uh, his accession, in uh, the 26 AD, and he was the Roman prefect uh, from 26 AD to 36 AD. The emperor's name who had chosen him directly was Tiberius. Uh, He was uh, chosen to govern over the province of Judea and did so for 10 years. His usual residence wasn't actually in Jerusalem. It was actually in Caesarea. But for feasts and special events, uh, he would... as as the practice was for governors, travel to Jerusalem. And we can uh, guess from the passage that he was most likely, in fact, staying in King Herod's palace on the southwestern part of Jerusalem. Well, why is he in Jerusalem? Well, during the important festivals uh, in Jewish culture, nationalism was on the rise. People were proud of the nation of Israel and religious fervor was on high and he would take up residence in Jerusalem presumably to watch the crowds and to respond quickly to any signs of trouble or revolt. That's why he was present at this time in Jerusalem. And history shows us that Pilate was a pragmatist and very opportunistic. And he was driven by self-preservation. And he'd already found himself in his short tenure in quite a bit of trouble. In his first year as governor, Josephus records that he brought army standards with images of uh, Roman emperors on them, which are idols to the Jews, into Jerusalem, leading to mass protests. And when he sent the troops in and the protesters bared their throats to be killed, he backed down embarrassingly. Uh, But not only from that one instance in his first year, Philo records that he brought idolatrous gold shields into Herod's palace on one occasion, uh, which he later had to remove, fearing the Jews would send an embassy to Rome. Such was the protests against him. Further and later, he'd spent money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct. It led again, once again, to mass protests and a a violent crackdown uh, leading to much police brutality on behalf of Pilate. And eventually, in fact, three years after our passage in AD 36, he led a violent crackdown in Samaria 
leading to him being recalled to Rome by the Emperor Caligula, and one historian writes uh, his eventual suicide. This was a man with a rocky tenure. And there was a mutual hatred and distrust between Pilate and the religious elite. However, Pilate was also a pragmatist who was governed by self-preservation. He wants to remain governor and his tenure is experiencing some difficulty. While we read our passage again, verse 1b says the following. It says, And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Pilate asks, Are you the king of the Jews? Now this is interesting because this is the first time this is used of Jesus. You see, the religious leaders in their meeting had come up with a plan. And the plan was to lay a political charge against Jesus. Their charge is, He's claiming to be the Jewish king. He's trying to start an uprising in Jerusalem against Rome. And Jesus says to Pilate, you have said so. Kind of a qualified yes. Something like, yes, but, but your idea of kingship is very different from mine. The religious leaders then begin to accuse him of many things. Luke kind of fills in the gaps a little bit for us. He writes in Luke 23, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. Verse 5, But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. They're accusing him of sedition. They're accusing him of trying to start an uprising. But Jesus is silent. This is the fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah, 700 years earlier, writes the following. He says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Pilate was amazed by Jesus. Pilate was used to vehement defense when life is on the line. But Jesus was here to lay down his life, and he refuses to defend himself. Now John fills in the gaps for us. Jesus tells Pilate in John 18, 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate is astonished. Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. He's not a revolutionary. And he sees an opportunity to release him and gain favor with the people. Read on verse 6. It says, Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. It's feast time in Jerusalem and the smell of lamb is in the air. Friday is the evening of the Passover when the crowds, as is their practice, begin to climb the hill to the governor's headquarters, likely Herod's palace. And they're expecting the usual release of a prisoner at this time. 
Now, Pilate does not believe for a second that the religious leaders are upset with Jesus for attempting to overthrow Rome. No, he has a hostile relationship with the Jewish leaders. He does not trust them. In verse 10, it says, in fact, that he sees they're jealous of him. And so he's resistant to give them what they want. But with the crowd now here, and with his usual practice of releasing a prisoner in mind, believing that perhaps it's only the leaders who want to do away with Jesus, and believing instead that Jesus is likely probably a popular teacher with the crowds, he decides to offer them Jesus instead. A popular teacher, maybe the people will appreciate it and some points for him. But we read on in verse 9. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him instead release for them Barabbas. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Pilate's plans backfired. He forgets the antagonism of all the Jewish people towards him with the chief priests whipping up the crowds, shouting for Jesus to be crucified. They want to release Barabbas instead, an insurrectionist, a leader of a violent revolt against the Romans. And Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He knows Barabbas is guilty. But rather than choosing justice, instead, we read in verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate is afraid of another riot. He's already had a lot of trouble. He might lose his role as governor of Judea. And so self-preservation reigns. He sends him to be scourged and crucified. The word scourge describes a word in Latin, the, flag, the flagellum. And a punishment so severe it would often kill people. Bible uh, scholar Mark Strauss says the following of the flagellum. He says, Such scourging was incredibly severe and often resulted in death. The victim would be stripped and their hands tied above their head. A whip of leather cords with pieces of bone, lead or glass embedded in them would be used. The Jews limited scourges to 40 lashes. But the Romans had no such limitations. The whipping could cause severe lacerations, not only to the skin, but also to muscle tissue and bone. Josephus speaks of Jesus, son of Annas, being whipped with scourges to the bone. Pilate knowingly condemns an innocent man to one of the most cruel forms of death ever invented. Why? His career was on the line. And self-preservation reigned. 
You see, it's possible to allow self-preservation and career to lead you to reject Christ. To tell yourself things like, in a different season, I'll make the time. I just need to establish myself for now. The cost of the moment is just too much. Later date. And if so, in this story, you are just like Pilate. Not just the religious leaders, not just Pilate, but also the crowd. Read with me again, verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. The crowd came up to Pilate in anticipation of the annual release of a prisoner. And surprisingly, immediately they find themselves faced with two, uh, two choices. In fact, two Jesuses. From Matthew's gospel, we learn of the first choice, uh, which is Jesus Barabbas. His first name was Jesus. Barabbas is Aramaic and it means literally the son of the father. And Barabbas was the leader of a violent uprising against Rome. He was a would-be revolutionary and attempting to take the throne in Jerusalem. And he represents their expectation of a Messiah. He's a war hero. He's a political revolutionary. And with Roman resentment high amongst the Jewish people, we can expect he is a popular figure. The second choice is Jesus of Nazareth, the true Messiah. The Messiah who taught love for enemies, who taught submission to authorities, who befriended tax collectors, who, by the way, worked for Rome, who was a friend of the outcast, who, who said during his ministry that he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem, who taught that he'd come to die and rise again, that people could know God, and who is being accused by their own leaders of blasphemy against God. And you see, the crowd was blinded by their culture. The choice was obvious for them. Barabbas is the one they want. And so they shout, crucify him. Crucify him. A strong political leader. Someone who could help them defeat the Romans. Not this weak, pathetic Jesus claiming to be God and yet passive to Rome. Even Jesus' disciples thought Jesus was a kind of Barabbas. And so similar to the crowd, for many people, they allow their culture to lead them to reject Jesus. Many assume that Jesus should abide by Western values, Western sexuality, Western thinking about religious and pluralism. And they reject him. And maybe it's not all of his teaching, but certain parts of it, the bits that are hard to hear about him, like deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If we find ourselves rejecting Jesus because he's not the kind of leader our culture tells us we should have, we're just like the crowds. And the crowds condemn Jesus. 
And they reject Jesus because they're blinded by their culture. But fourth and finally, not just the crowds, but the soldiers. It says in verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him and stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. You know, in the lead up to this passage, Jesus has already been scourged. He's already suffered the cruel whipping with the flagellum. And so the writer of Isaiah writes, describing Jesus in this moment, 700 years earlier in Isaiah fifty-two fourteen. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. Jesus was a bloody mess. And they call the whole cohort, it's probably a reference to the whole group on duty at that time, and they find a purple coat. Matthew tells us that it was the faded coat of a soldier. And they make a crown or a wreath out of thorns. And they put a rod in his hand. And they give him a kind of mock salute. Hail, King of the Jews. The equivalent of Ave Caesar. Hail Caesar, King of Rome. They begin striking him and striking him and spitting on him, and spitting on him, and falling to their knees, and mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Striking him, and spitting on him, and kneeling on him, and mocking him over and over again. Because to the soldiers, Jesus looks nothing like a king. He looks like a disfigured, bleeding mess. He looks like a macabre figure, a weak figure, a horrific figure, a defeated and shameful figure, a figure worthy of ridicule. You see, Jesus is just another failed insurrectionist, the pretender to the throne. And so the soldiers' condemnation, their rejection of Jesus... It's circumstantial. You see, they're used to dealing with troublemakers. They never even pause to consider whether Jesus is anything more than just another pretender. This is just another day. So they carry out another execution, completely oblivious to who is actually before them. And as they mock him, and as they taunt him, they're oblivious to the fact that this is not only a king, but the king of kings. And as they spit in his face, 
they have no idea he's the one who sustains their very breath. And as they force him to carry of the cross, they do not realize that he willingly goes. And as they drive the nails into his hands, that he is laying down his life. And as they lift the cross upwards, that he endures the Father's wrath in their place, that they might be reconciled to God. And as he cries, it is finished that he had bought forgiveness and reconciliation for millions. You see, crucifixion was not the normal mode of execution. It was the mode reserved for the worst offenders. It was especially reserved for two types of people, rebels and insurrectionists, and slaves guilty of the most horrendous crimes. It was a form of execution designed to two ends, to maximize pain and humiliation over days. And because of their circumstances, they failed to consider that Jesus could be more than just another criminal. Maybe you're here today and you're just like the soldiers. Because of your circumstances, you've never really considered Jesus. Maybe you grew up non-religious in upbringing or of a different religion. Maybe you're not usually a churchgoer or maybe you've just never really been interested you are just like the soldiers who, because of their circumstance, reject Jesus. Well, in our passage, in our story this morning, we've seen four different characters all rejecting, all condemning the innocent King Jesus, the religious leaders, Pilate, the crowd, the soldiers, all rejecting in him, condemning him to die. And as we close, I want to close by Considering a word of application for us, how does this passage, how does all we've looked at apply to us? How should we respond to this? Well, I think there's really two categories of person that I want to address, and I believe Mark wishes to address this morning. The first is those yet to give their lives to Christ. Maybe you've been coming along here for a while yet. Maybe you're still in high school and you've never come to a place of giving your life to Jesus. Well, the only appropriate way to respond to this passage is to repent and believe. To genuinely stop living in rebellion to God. To see His innocent King in your place and... And to just respond with asking for his forgiveness and putting your trust in him. Asking him to take hold of your life, to lead you forever. This faithful, innocent king in your place. You know, if that's you, I'd love nothing more than to speak with you. And I just encourage you, I don't want to embarrass you, I'd love to help you. And so please come and make yourself known to myself or the person that you came along with today. We would love to lead you towards repentance and trust in Christ this morning. 
But the second category is for those here and for most of us that are already following Christ. And the only appropriate response to this passage, as I alluded to this morning, is fresh gratitude to God for the cross. Just to thank Him for the cross. To give thanks to God for the depth of suffering that Christ endured. Not just the rejection, but the scourging and the mocking and the beating and the spitting and the shaming and the wrath of His Father on the cross. We respond in thanks to God. But thanks to God for the depth of suffering He endured. Not just that, thanks for coming to be condemned. You know, it wasn't just Barabbas who was guilty on that day. It was everyone. Jesus was condemned by everyone. Everyone abandoned him. The religious leaders abandoned him. Pilate abandoned him. The crowd condemned him. The soldiers condemned him. The disciples abandoned him. And he was completely innocent. Worthy of the worship of the entire world. But picture this. His silence. His complete silence. Because he willingly went. He came to be condemned. But not just that he came to be condemned and that that alone is worthy of thanks and praise and gratitude to God, but thanks for coming to be condemned in our place. You know, one of the most beautiful and yet bittersweet images of our passage is found in verse 15. In verse 15, we read the following, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, But having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Barabbas, the guilty, released. Jesus, the innocent, condemned. Jesus said in in Mark 10.45 that he come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This was a place taking death. And so we give thanks to God for in this narrative, we are Barabbas, the guilty released. He took our place. And for that, we give thanks to God. Well, we've seen four different characters condemn the innocent king, the religious leaders, Pilate, the crowd, and the soldiers. And in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of their rejection, I trust we've seen our innocent king being condemned in our place. Let's pray and respond with fresh thanks to God. Won't you join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, words cannot describe the injustice you experienced on that day. That you, our innocent King, 
lay down your life for us. And yet, you did it willingly. It was the joy set before you to obey your Father and save our souls. Lord, we confess that often we don't live in light of your cross. And often we don't thank you appropriately as we ought. So we ask, Lord, would you help us? Help us to respond to your cross with fresh thanksgiving and praise. In every moment of every day, may our lips and our mouths declare your praise. For all you purchased for us on that day, on that cross, Lord, we worship you. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. We're going to take our time. I just want us to sit for a minute.